This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Republic weekly podcast. I'm Rio Sampson Folk, and today walking through what you, the listeners, think, be answering some questions with a dear, dear friend and a writer, superstar extraordinaire for TheAthletic.com, Blake Murphy. Blake, how are you doing, man? I'm well. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. I feel much better about this. We tried to record this earlier, but my internet was uh, schizophrenic. It was uh, very up and down, so it had a lot of things going on. And now we're coming together again to, uh, to try and make it right. How dare you say that about Elon Musk's internet? Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. How are Elon you doing Musk. down there, man? Have, have you been working on your roundhouse kicks or what? I roundhouse kick. Uh, it's not often that I roundhouse kick. The thing that I do most often for exercise is basketball and running. Last night or the night before, either way, they just put on a lockdown similar to what you guys are going through in Toronto here. And so the courts are closed now, so I can't play basketball or anything like that. Um, my roommate and I, Beto, would go and just play the two of us. So that's not really an option anymore. So just running, roundhouse kicks. I don't have a, a punching bag to use as a kicking bag or anything like that. And I've never been much of a fighter in my life. So I have not incorporated much of that into my life yet but I'll have to for when I throw down with S. I, uh, are you, oh yeah, the, the tag team, interspecies tag team match with the dogs, right? Yes, <laughs> interspecies. Poe yeah. is probably going to drag me down a lot in that regard. He's, he's very undersized. I don't know. It's, uh, we'll see. I mean, maybe your roundhouse kick is all you need. I have been watching Cobra Kai on Netflix, so I'm ready to go uh, from a fighting standpoint and from a bullying kids into being more violent standpoint. So. Yeah, my uh, my roommate Beto is a huge fan of the Miyagi verse, and at his behest, I watched all of Cobra Kai in the past like week. And in fact, I stayed up till five a.m. I think watching season three, the one day. And so now, the my conviction to become good at roundhouse kicks is actually much stronger. How, how long I'm, do you think it would take only, you to beat me up? Sorry, I'm only through season one. Um, so if you uh, if you spoiled something from season three. Uh, before I cut you off there, the answer to your question would have been very, very quickly. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. You'd have a, you'd have a speed advantage. Um, you do have those long legs for kicks, but I, I think I certainly have a strength and experience advantage on you. Yeah, I feel like, because if I'm trying to fight you, I, you are the thing I'm trying to get to. There's no medium for us to interact with. It's not like basketball where I could speed is getting me somewhere else on the court. I think I just have to get to you. I think you just kick my ass as far as that goes. But I, I, I guess that's I, life. 
I don't want to think about it. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> look, the, the experience is a real thing. You know, you can look at me and see that I've probably been punched in the face before. And you can look at you and see that you probably haven't. You're, you know, you have uh, you're the only time you would have to fight someone is because of what's known in the wrestling business, handsome guy heat, where uh, people get, you know, disproportionately upset because they're also upset that you're better looking than them. Uh, I don't have those issues. Most of my fighting came from alcohol or hockey. So, um, but anyway, I don't want to think about uh, us fighting, Samson. It's, uh, although it is funny, you know, the the whole son and, or son and disappointed dad shtick that we have. Uh, it could be building to, if you've ever seen the movie Hot Rod, the final scene in that movie. Have you seen the movie Hot Rod? Of course. Okay. I, was, I was a teenager when it came out, so that movie was everything to me when it first came out. It's terrific. Holds up not bad. Andy Samberg, what a career. Yeah, he's got a Tom, lot going on. Palm Springs is uh, very, very good also, if you haven't seen that yet. I think I liked my favorite off-the-cuff Andy Samberg joke was when he was on the Eric Andre show, and Eric was trying to coax him into taking his pants off, and he says, you have to do this if you want to succeed in the industry. And he says, I have a much better career than you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah. Okay. There you go. We're here. Okay, we should probably speaking of uh, having good careers and things we should do in the industry. Uh, the Toronto Raptors, four and eight, Samson. Yes, four and eight have had a very topsy turvy season in a league that has been famously topsy turvy so far. Uh, MVP caliber players are being traded. MVP caliber teams have been underwhelming. The Knicks were leading the league in three point percentage at one point in time. A lot of crazy things happening. The Pacers perhaps on the good juju or good vibes of Nate Bjorkren taking some from the Raptors. They speed forward. Karis LeVert uh, had a mass on his kidney and found out via trade because he had to do a physical. A lot of crazy things going on. And I guess we're here to, uh, to walk through some of the concerns or optimistic yeah, takes. You didn't even mention the 14 games that have been postponed because of the pandemic we're operating within. Yeah, it's oh, been a boy. lot. Yeah. The, uh, and, and then like you trace it back and like the 76ers game is postponed Sunday because of a contact tracing with the Grizzlies from the night before. And then you look at who the Wizards kind of contacted with when they got shut down and the ripple effect that's had. And it's like, uh oh, there's a Memphis or Philadelphia trickle effect coming now, possibly. Um, and then, yeah, anyway, it's a. Uh, it's a mess, and that's a part of why the league's been so weird and a little uncomfortable to watch. And then some of it is just the quick restart and the bizarre situation. Like, you get things like Luka Doncic putting up a tremendous historic line on Sunday in a big loss to the Bulls or the Knicks stomping the Celtics. And then if you're a Raptor fan, you can't even feel good about those things because the Raptors are nightly doing their own embarrassing things. So... Um, not a not a great time for Schadenfreude. Uh, not a great time for just about anyone outside of Lakers land. I think. I mean, they're probably riding high, defending champions with a, a great net rating to start the season, um, topped only by the Bucks, who we of course know uh, will lose in the second round of the playoffs. <laughs> the uh, the NBA famously following the, I guess, logical through line that uh, Benjamin Chang of Community fame put forward. Uh, fire can't go through walls, stupid. It's not a ghost. Similar type of logic application for the contact tracing as far as between the lines and how that affects it. Okay, let's talk Raptors. Freddie yeah, Rivas, sure. friend of the podcast, 
Confederacy of Dunks podcast. He's a co-host over there. But he asks a question. Has the league caught on to the overly aggressive Raptors defense? Is it a personnel issue? And if so, does Nurse need to adjust the guys or should he double down? I'll let you take the lead on this one. Sure. So um, if anyone's not familiar with what Freddie is referring to, last year the Raptors allowed an NBA record rate of corner threes. And the reason was not because corner threes are a good shot necessarily, but that allowed the Raptors to be super aggressive, keeping teams away from the rim, stopping them if they got to the rim, and forcing a ton of turnovers. You've surely seen, you know, beyond just the zone, Siakam and Boucher and OG flying out uh, at shooters to kind of force these rush shots. Uh, And the result was that the Raptors not only gave up the most corner threes ever, but they also held opponents to a very low three-point percentage for the second year in a row. Now, historically, we've believed on the analytics side that you have a better, you have more control over the three-point volume that you allow rather than three-point percentage. And obviously there are things like above the break versus in the corners, which shooters you leave open, how late in the clock and things like that. Um, I dove in pretty deep last year and it seemed the Raptors were getting at least a little fortunate uh, from the corners with the volume they were giving up. Now, in terms of if the league has caught on, Um, I don't think it's that necessarily. I think, you know, you look at those numbers and they were such an outlier last year that teams had to be ready. Uh, And we saw, you know, the Raptors star stopping strategy result in some very good games for supporting casts like the Harden double team game against Houston. Um, You know, the bigger thing I think is that the Raptors aren't executing as well. And the rate of corner threes they're allowing has gone down in terms of uh, volume but they're not doing as good a job of protecting the rim and they're not being quite as fortunate with variance. So, um, you know, I don't know that the ebbs and flows in opponent three-point percentage are something that the Raptors are going to be able to control until we have, you know, a significantly larger sample than 12 games. But I would certainly say the fact that they've fallen to being just an average rim protection team kind of undercuts the strategy a little bit. You know, you can live with the the volume of threes if they're late and rushed and it means you're protecting the highest value part of the floor, the rim. Um, But if you're not, if you're doing all that and and you're accepting those results and you're not protecting the highest value part of the floor, then you maybe have to, uh, you know, if this continues for another eight, 10, 12 games, uh, maybe you have to consider a a tweak, maybe not necessarily be more conservative necessarily, but just to use uh, your length a little differently, your switchability a little differently. And, Uh, as I'm sure someone has asked about, using your centers uh, a little differently as well. Yeah, when I look at how they're playing teams, particularly with the closeouts, it's very intelligent sometimes, and then seemingly there's no direction others. You could look at the Phoenix game, Pascal, a lot of complaints. Uh, Zarrar, one of the people complaining (laughs) about uh, Pascal's closeouts on Jay Crowder in an effort, I think schematically, to make Jay Crowder put the ball on the floor. Whereas you look at Pascal when he was closing out on CP3, it's chopped feet, it's contained because one guy is better off the dribble and the, another guy is uh, obviously not very dangerous going downhill, passing the ball on the move. I'm not saying Jay Crowder is incapable. I'm just saying that seemed to be it. But that doesn't, that's not consistently something that happens from every Raptor. And the defense seems really disconnected if they're not switching a pick and roll or just completely blowing it up with one of, you know, a combination of like Pascal and OG or OG and Stanley or something like that. The communication and the backline defense seems to be struggling. And then when you think about the Raptors, the type of hard sell defense they play elongates possessions 
you have to have you have to sustain longer defensive stands for a longer amount of time. You have to make more good rotations, and I just don't think that's been there this year. And I think five games into the season, this could be off by a little bit, so don't quote me on it, but roughly around 60% shooting on pull-up dribbles against the Raptors four or five games into the year, which obviously is the other side of the, uh, the leaf that is not sustainable as far as team shooting against the Raptors. Yeah, for sure. You're not going to allow that bad of a, a pull-up percentage uh, for long, unless, of course, you're playing against Etwan Moore and Ish Smith, who always do that to the Raptors in the floater range, uh, but not above the break. Um, yeah, so I, I think we're on the same page. You know, I think the that whole playing a whole possession of defense thing is a staple of the Raptors' defense. And I think you look at last year, how many times did we just marvel at the way that their defense stayed on a string for – um, you know, entire, uh, entire possessions. And then you look this year and that's maybe not happening quite as much. And you can look at, uh, you know, they've gotten even worse defensive rebounding wise. I think, you know, anecdotally where the traditional centers have struggled is not necessarily the first line of defense in pick and roll, but, you know, if you jump at this spot or you overhelp at this spot, you know, how do you recover within the defensive system to where some, you're not recovering to a spot where someone already picked you up and, you know, the Raptors are pretty aggressive and, and it's, they do change their scheme up a lot and they don't have a ton of uh, returning players. And then you even get into things like, you know, they've played so many minutes small and that's helpful in one way because they can get really switchy that way. But Boucher is not a guy that they necessarily trust in the super switchy scheme. He's still someone who's best off kind of hanging back by the rim and being protected that way. That's why, you know, he often looks so good in those zone defenses. So there's some stuff to figure out. And I think, you know, I think both Baines and Len will eventually be a little better than they've shown. And all of this kind of flows out from the rim. Uh, But you also have to start looking at, you know, okay, maybe if Boucher ends up being a, a bigger minute starter, you know, your your base defense maybe needs to account for Boucher versus having a, a more traditional drop back big or something like that. Because, um, you know, you can, the Raptors have shown for two years in a row that you can give up a lot of threes and still be a really good defense, but everything else has to go right. And, and that starts with doing a better job protecting the rim. Um, they do still have at least the, the turnover side of thing things working uh, well enough but uh, that's not, you know, that's not everything. You gotta, you can't turn it over every time. Yeah, Boucher, as far as the defensive playmaking aspect, at the rim, OG above the break. They they have a lot of that. It's interesting when I think about Marcus. All had a quote at the start of the year in regards to the type of defense he wanted to play with the Lakers, and was talking about how different guards take different steps when they're coming to help and how he needs to be in sequence with those steps. And he was saying he's going to need time to reach his best type of defense with the Lakers. And he's a savant defensively. Mm -hmm. And the Raptors are a a defense that was very much in sequence for, you know, a stretch of what, 18, 19 months of, of basketball. And now that's kind of been robbed from them, especially with Gasol leaving and they have to try and, uh, Make up and OGN and Obi when he's talking about the Charlotte Hornets defense last night, he was saying they switch out of zone and then into man and then back into zone all in one possession. And if you watch the Raptors, they do the same thing, less so this year. But there's a lot going on, and defense isn't just structure. There's reads being made all the time by a bunch of different teams. And as you say, 
ice the side pick and roll against Etwan Moore at, at your peril. There's a lot of ways yeah. to, uh, to be beat defensively, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to take it back to the centers quickly. Um, you know, I guess Gasol's point is such a, such an interesting thing. I was having a, a DM conversation uh, with Lewis Zatzman about the Dunning-Kruger effect earlier today. And, you know, the fact that Gasol has the knowledge and intelligence to recognize what, you know, that it's that specific a thing that he doesn't know and is figuring out, whereas a lesser defender might not even recognize that, right? And, and like the not, the knowing what you don't know or what you haven't done yet is a, you know, not for lack of confidence. It's just kind of a, an experiential thing. Um, and Boucher is obviously much less experienced overall. And Aaron Baines is learning um, this system still. I think too, there's like, you know, a funny twist on its head. And again, these these numbers are extremely small sample over 12 games, some of which Baines has sat. Uh, but if you go into the on-off numbers for the Raptors, when Baines is on the floor, opponents are shooting at the rim much less. But when they get there, they're shooting incredibly well. And with Boucher, they're shooting much more often when he's on the floor at the rim, but they're shooting uh, a much poorer percentage because he's a, a rim protector. So it's it's kind of highlighted the difference between rim deterrence and rim protection. Um, and they're both valuable, obviously, but it's not super valuable when uh, your centers are only doing one of the two. Uh, and I don't mean that to to be negative about Boucher, who's obviously been... Uh, very good overall, but there's a reason that Stanley Johnson was getting the offense defense switch with him still late in that last Charlotte game. Um, because you know, there's still this is going to be Boucher's first season playing every game and being in the rotation every game in a meaningful way. So he, uh, you know, there's still some growth to happen on that end of the floor for him. Did Draymond Green bust through your wall like Kool Aid Man when you said, Know what you don't know? Yeah, yeah, the uh. The, as I think Seth Partnow called it, the Draymond Kruger effect instead of the Dunning Kruger effect. So Yes, that's exactly it. Okay, another question from Craven Science 1, and I think this one you'll probably have a pretty good answer on, Blake. Does Norm pick up his player option next year, assuming he continues playing at the same level of the past two years? Does this make the Raps more or less likely to try and trade him this season? Uh, yeah, so there's some disagreement on this on Raptors Twitter. Um, you know, I was talking with Joe Wolf on the other night uh, about trade stuff, and, and he was, you know, of the mind that there's still a value attached to um, including Powell in a trade because then you're out from his 2021-2022 player option. Um, you know, I still I would guess that he is still opting out. If you look at the amount of cap space that's going to be out there, how many guys with rookie scale extensions or vet extensions have come off the market? Um, obviously, Powell is not off to a very good start to this season. And 2019-2020 is almost for sure going to look like a, a career year in retrospect that, that he's not going to be able to match the level of. Uh, he is still going to be, though, a – what will he be? He'll be 28 this offseason – um, with six years of experience and a winning program, sometimes starting. And then as long as his three-point percentage stays in the upper 30s this year, he's going to have a three-year track record on pretty good volume of being roughly a 40% three-point shooter. So, um, you know, if you're a, a prime-age wing who can knock down high 30s, low 40s percentage of threes, you're going to get $10 million a year over a couple years. So I think, you know, even if he his player options for 116 even if he takes a small haircut on that, he's going to be able to re-up for a, almost surely a four-year deal, I think, at a similar salary. So I'd guess he opts out. Um, I don't think that that changes the accounting in a trade all that much, just because 
I've been pretty firmly on the he's the most likely outbound piece in any trade framework anyway, just because the way the roster is structured, tilted heavy toward the backcourt and his 2021 option just in case. And just when you get into salary matching and stuff, having a, a 10 or $11 million player is so helpful. Um, but I have also, it's funny, early in Norm's career when he was a second round pick, you know, you, you can go back and read the, the draft profile I wrote on him for the score. And I was very, very high on him. And I liked him a lot with the 905. And I think I and the rest of and a lot of other Raptors fans have kind of gone in different directions with him where, you know, he had the best, his best game of the season on Saturday with 24 points and, and a career high six threes. And I thought it was absolutely the right call for him not to be on the floor late because I just don't trust the decision-making. Um, so that's probably what goes into my willingness to trade him. It's a lot of factors, uh, but I do think I would bet if I had to right now that he'll opt out. Yeah. I still think he would opt out even if the season continues the question asked if he was like the past two years and if he's like the past two years, then definitely yes. Because over the past two years, I think he is over 40% from downtown. And if I, I'm just spitting like uh, guessing, I think it's over like 64% at the rim over the past two years. That could be a little bit high, but he's, that has but he's been dropped good. off significantly again this year though, is the, yeah. uh, is the issue. So yeah, he shot 62% at the rim two years ago, 66 last year, and he's down to 42 this year so far, which is uh, yikes. Small sample, but I think I, off the dome, I was accurate then. So I'm happy with that. But yeah. if he's, if he's static and the, everything rounds out to the last two years, then he will definitely uh, not take the option and he'll go hit the market. And I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the rest of the season looks like. Hopefully he starts playing a little bit better, more consistently. And uh, yeah, I guess we'll see if teams sell themselves on him as a guy they want to add, or if the Raptors are just kind of dealing guys out to mold the team into something new. Who's to as, say? A, as a Jacob Mack on Raptors Twitter has said before, it's very it's been very funny to chart norms like, value at each end of the floor over the course of his career. And he's gone from being like almost an exclusively defensive value prospect to now 100% of his value comes via just scoring. Uh, it's funny. is not the right word. Infuriating is maybe a better one, but uh, you know, there was a point where we thought maybe he could be like kind of a peak KCP, Avery Bradley kind of defender where you're the nominal two, but you're guarding point guards because of your length and your lateral quickness and, um, nope, certainly not anymore. Trade DeMar for KCP, build around T. Ross. That's, that's the deal. Okay. Hey, and big shout out to Jacob Mack, a man with uh, extreme posting stamina. He'll be on this podcast to debate Anthony Doyle about a draftless NBA. Oh, no. Are you guys point. actually doing that? Hell yeah, baby. Oh, boy. <laughs> 100%. Oh, no. Yeah. I'll he does po- posting stamina is a is a good term, and it's yeah. uh, you know it's something that not a lot of this is why there's a there's a special class of of true posters and, and those who post with honor. Um, you know, it's about as my boy the Zoob says, it's it's not about how many good tweets you send necessarily. It's about uh, how many bad tweets you don't send. Uh, so posting stamina, you know that uh, that ability to post frequently without losing the uh, you know fidelity of your posts is a, a rare skill high usage high efficiency Jacob Mack yeah well he's man he's I don't know him super well I've talked to him not too much more recently he's sharp as hell dude and him and Anthony I think both are at least somewhat well researched on the topic so I'm excited to 
to learn something. But okay, we have a question from Hoop Goose. What are your thoughts on Pascal and Fred's improvements this year? Has Stanley actually gotten better, or have the Raptors just figured out that he's secretly a center? Is he better than Leonard Baines? Which 6'9 forward on a two-way contract has been ex- excellent positionally so far? Okay. That is, that is a lot of questions. <laughs> but good ones. Yeah, so let's break this down. Give me, give me the shorter, give me them in shorter bursts. Okay, I'll, I'll take the first one. Chaskel sure. and Fred improvements this year. Okay, so Fred, as far as the improvements he's been making as a ball handler, they relate to not settling to resetting the offense as often. He's become much better at probing when he's on ball. It hasn't resulted in better finishing, and that's not to say he has bad touch at the rim. He has excellent touch. It's just help side defenders, backside defenders, anybody who's coming to contest his shot, it's a lot easier because he's very small in stature. His improvements on ball are so much related to his playmaking. He's still not great at finding guys and leading them into layups, but when the Raptors, a team who shoots a lot of threes, have it going, the little knife into the lane and spray the ball across the court to the corner that Fred does is really important to what they're doing. He pushes the ball all the time, just keeps it moving, creates transition opportunities out of pseudo transition opportunities, creates pseudo transition out of dead ball type of opportunities. That's awesome because you need guys to win the margins like that. And shooting, he, I've held this belief for maybe two years. He's one of the best catch and shoot operators in the league. I love his off ball work. He's smart in relocation. Is that something he's improved on this year? Maybe just in efficiency, maybe not in process, but I've liked that a lot. And uh, yeah, I'll let you answer on Fred and then we'll do Pascal. Yeah, I actually have a piece coming out of the Athletic Monday that kind of goes into some of this in greater detail because he is, you know, carrying higher usage on basically the same um, true shooting percentage, which is great when you consider that his three-point percentage is down and his free throw rate's down and his finishing is down. So he's obviously got to be doing something uh, better with all of this uh, additional usage. So I think, um, you know, your point about his passing is really important. His assist rate's up. His turnover rate is way down. He's only turned the ball over three times on drives all season, uh, even though he is the most pass-heavy driver uh, of anyone on, like, even moderate drive usage. So, um, you know, he's uh, – which which is funny when you dig into the transition numbers because he very rarely passes in transition. Uh, anyway, so – all that is to say is I think that that speaks a lot to how he's feeling out the offense. Um, you know, finishing is something that we need a bigger sample on to get too worried about. Now he does have a, a career long sample of being a poor finisher. Uh, I just don't think it's as bad as finishing at less than 50%. Um, and then I think the three point percentage will come back up because like you said, he's an elite catch and shoot guy. He is taking more pull-ups this year and he's shooting a little better on them, which is great too, because that helps, you know, bend the defense vertically. It gives you a little more space in the pick and roll. Uh, but the biggest thing to me, and there was a great example of this in the second quarter against Charlotte, where he kind of took in a, in a pseudo transition, he took one of those kickouts from Pascal as Pascal drew kind of the Giannis like wall. And then Fred attacked between Devonte Graham and Gordon Hayward with this Euro kind of move and then hit this like kind of leaning uh, 11 footer off of one foot and touched it off glass. And it's that those in between spots where he's not shooting between the rim and the three point line, any like he's not taking a higher volume from there this year 
but he's way, way better at those shots. He's been better at stepping into mid-range twos. He's really improved his floater package and runner package, I think. And, you know, we're talking small samples with all this stuff because it's only 12 games, and that only means, you know, maybe we're talking 25, 30 shots. But those are such important things if you're going to be a great three-point shooter and if you're going to be a below-average finisher, you know, having those in-between options is what is going to open up, you know, some of your pocket passes or some of your kickouts. You have to be a threat inside the arc before you get to the rim if, if you're not going to be a huge threat at the rim. So I think, you know, it, it's, it can get long-winded, obviously, the, the way I'm answering here and the way I write in general. But with Van Vliet, and I, I feel the same about a lot of Boucher's improvements, it's a lot of little things moving in the right direction and when you're Van Vliet and you have this awesome floor because you're a great catch and shoot artist and an elite defender, you know, every tiny little improvement really mat like it really raises your ceiling because your floor is that of like a really good three and D guy. So, you know, if you can get become just a little bit better of a pick and roll passer or just a little better kicking it out off of drives without having to gnash it or reset and just a little bit better, you know, using that mid range space or the free throw line space. Um, all of that stuff is building on top of a really, really strong foundation. So, um, you know, a lot of little improvements goes a really long way with a, a player in the position Van Bleed is. And heavy hands. Of course. Mm-hmm. Okay, Pascal, I'll let you go first. Sure. Um, you know, see, I, with Pascal, I think the improvement is basically right now just in the playmaking uh, area. I, I think obviously he's had better scoring games, and um, you know, he's looked the last little bit like he's getting his post game back and his confidence uh, attacking, getting to the front of the rim a little bit. Uh, but for me, the big thing is the stride he's taken as a playmaker and understanding what a defense is going to do in response to him and taking advantage of that. Yes. His turnover rates up a little bit, uh, but his assist rate has taken a major jump and is at a, a career high rate. Um, you know, obviously there are some scoring concerns right now in, in his 11 game sample. And, and you need to see more of that uh, consistently the way he played um, the couple of games before Saturday's game. But I think, you know, that playmaking to me, suggests a higher comfort zone with the way defenses are approaching him. And that's, you know, like you can only imagine that that's going to result in uh, an uptick back in scoring at, at some point as well. Yeah. And as far as the post-ups, I think one of the coolest things is that Pascal, when he was part of the bench mob, was that he was a very good playmaker on the move for the type of player we perceived to, to be at the time. So when he would make that little shovel pass to the guy in the dunker spot when he was driving, let's say it was Pirtle at that point in time, that was great to see. Uh, similar things from OG. It's just that little step of progression that you didn't know was there. And now to the point where he's diving and he's still, he gets stripped a lot, kind of cutting through the middle, whether he's trying to get to the front of the rim or just the other side of the court. But when he's on the dive, He's good at creating to all points of the court, whether it's either corner or looking back behind himself above the break. He's capable of all those passes. And now there is a, a standstill aspect to his playmaking where he can just be in the post and read the defense as it's kind of shifting to accommodate what he might be able to do in one-on-one coverage, whether that's a double or just shading him heavily. His reads have been really, really impressive so far this year. And on that West Coast road trip, I think his how he attacked individual players was really great. The balance he had, being able to hold his pivot foot and always remain dangerous in the triple threat, shifting in and out of post-ups into face-up, all very fluid attacking. 
very nice to see. Obviously, the scoring, the passing was all there. And grab-and-go was a huge part of his game during that road trip. The Hornets kind of sold out to stop him and make him uncomfortable. He still probably didn't do enough in the middle of the floor when he was going against Biombo or P.J. Washington. That's something he needs to improve on is how dangerous he is there, especially if it's just at like the nail. But there's been a lot of things to like. Three-point shooting should come around. And if it does, you're looking at a guy who can go into the post, manipulate a defense, hit threes if they sink, and hopefully they start adding more pick-and-roll possessions for him, either as a screener or as a handler. But I've liked what I've seen, even if there has been a lot of middling return baked into all of that. Yeah, for sure. And again, we always talk about sample this early and 20 games is kind of the cutoff where you start taking the the rate stats more seriously. Um, But, you know, that's... uh, you have to look at the track record, and I, under, I completely understand why people have been, you know, really up and down with him game to game because of how he struggled in the bubble and things like that. But um, process-wise, it's coming along. You know, top 10 assist rate for non-guards in the league right now. And that, that to me, I mean, like I said it earlier, it just that is the thing to me that suggests he's understanding defenses better than – you know, how, how many of his pull-up threes are getting knocked down. Like, people were worried about OG shooting six games into the year, and now he's he's knocking down everything, and nothing changed. He just got a bigger sample. So, um, yeah, I, I, and I guess I, I think Siakam's been maybe a little more uneven on defense than we're used to from him, but that's uh, just something additional to keep an eye on, I guess. Yeah, that's been a little bit confusing. Just – boneheaded fouls a lot of his turnovers too having watched like damn near every possession a few times over this season that he's had there's a a lot of really sloppy turnovers baked in that weren't even caused by a team that maybe Baines turned a layup into a turnover at one point or well a few times this season that kind of throws these stats out of whack so as you say sample size is important and uh, I guess we'll just have to wait and see for things to kind of normalize over the season but Stanley has yeah, he gotten sorry. better <laughs> or have the Raptors figured out that he's a center? So I guess the question basically is, is he being put in more advantageous positions or has he ameliorated his game in other, in other areas and now he's just succeeding regardless? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think, um, you know, one of the things that I wrote heading into the season, and I think at the end of last season too, when I, when I do my annual, you know, what does each guy need to work on this offseason? Um, what I said was that, you know, the talent level has never really been in doubt with Stanley Johnson, right? Like he was a top 10 pick. And even if that was an overdraft, uh, you know, he's shown flashes of being able to score at times. Obviously he looks very good in the open court in garbage time. He's got to kind of be a pseudo point guard, but the issue with Stanley Johnson, not only as his development stalled out in Detroit and Detroit started going in a different direction. um, And then a quick stop in new Orleans. And really last year, um, you know, there has to be that, role understanding and that role fit. And I don't mean that, you know, Stanley has to never shoot the ball or never attack the rim, but you can't go in there and have a 20% usage rate. If you're getting minutes within the rotation and you're Stanley Johnson and you have a six year sample of being a really inefficient scorer with a high turnover rate, like you just, you have to understand where you are a little better than that. And I think he's doing a good job of that. He's still not, you know, I still don't trust him a ton with the ball in his hands, and he's turning it over a lot, but he's using 9.9% of the offensive possessions when he's on the floor. And he's doing other things like, um, you know, career high offensive rebounding rate, 
very strong defensive rebounding rate, helping push in transition. Um, you know, he's always been a pretty sharp passer for um, someone of his kind of position and usage type. So, um, you know, it, where we talk about how Van Vliet or Boucher are just kind of adding things onto a really solid foundation, with Johnson, it's been almost the opposite where, you know, you've got to you got to kind of carve that foundation back up by taking things away and trying to do a little less. And I think, you know, we're talking about he's played 141 minutes. So he's played basically what he played last year already. And I don't think it's been gangbusters or anything like he's six of 14 on threes, which is great and probably won't keep up, but it maybe doesn't need to, um, you know, I, I think there is some worry about getting too locked into him in the rotation. If the, the three point shooting or the, or the net rating start to decline, but I think he's done what's been asked of him. And that's, you know, really for a guy this young with this much pedigree, that seems to have been his toughest transition over the course of his six year career is, um, okay, well, the shine's off of you as a lottery pick and you're not the guy that's being built around, you know, how do you use those skills that you thought you would be using for 20 points a game? How do you use them now in 15 minutes a game? And, you know, I think that's something that he's doing a better job of, of handling. And I'm, I'm sure it's not easy. I'm sure it was the ego hit. I'm sure last year not playing out of the gate and then suffering that groin injury. Um, you know, I'm sure it hasn't been easy, but uh, you know, credit to him because he's, he's defending like crazy and he fits that switching scheme. And um, you know, he's one of the 30 players that Dwayne Casey has called the LeBron stopper over the years. So, you know, uh, you know, the defensive pedigrees there. Um, I just think, you know, it, it's, it's kind of really simple with Stanley. It's just he's done what Nick Nurse always wants out of his bench forwards, and it's just defend like hell and then run in transition. And you can, you know, that's how they tried to get Siakam's footing back when um, after he had been down in the G League. It's how they tried to use OG in the year where he lost the starting spot. It's what they're asking for from Yuta Watanabe. Um, you know, McCaw's not a forward, but it's why Nurse likes McCaw in those roles. So it's a uh, you know, I think it really is kind of that simple for Stanley Johnson. It's just shrink the list of things. You know, Dwayne Casey used to talk about a roll card and like you have a cue card and these X number of things are written on it. And those are the things that you're being asked to do, you know, shrink that down and focus on the the top two things on your roll card. Um, you know, that's a, that's an oversimplification probably. But I also think, you know, when we're talking 140 minute sample, that's what stands out is, Stanley Johnson having better recognition that he's Stanley Johnson. Yeah. Historically a player with a proclivity to put too much dip on the chip as it were. But I, I do agree. The switching style he fits into quite nice. Sorry. That was a really long winded answer about Stanley Johnson, by the way. I no, just have, uh, I have takes that I'm working through with Stanley because that's I think uh, he's a super interesting player development case as like one of these guys who, we should have given up on by now based on experience level. Um, yeah. I'm not big on Stan. Uh, we might be a little bit far apart on him. I do. I still uh, pine for Yuda to take some of those minutes. I, and I, you said you don't, you're scared that, or not scared, but the worry is that, you know, fall too in love with Stanley at this type of spot in the rotation when, you know, guys like Paul Watson, Yuda, DeAndre Bembry, have, you know, as far as looking at the profile of their games, just as much reason to try and get a, a look. But if Stanley gets those minutes at, even though he's shooting really well from downtown, even though the net rating is in his favor, 
I still think, especially with you look at how he affects spacing, middling return. So we'll see yeah. with that. And I think the thing that might, you know, you think of Stanley Johnson mostly as a as a kind of a combo forward, but the thing that might really determine what his role continues to be is whether Baines or Len figure it out because part of the reason he's seeing so much time right now is that the Raptors are playing 44 minutes some games without a center and Stanley is not lighting the butt, as he said. Not lighting the butt. That's a great term, by the way. Uh, everything is everything is fine just because he brought that into the the lexicon, I think. Okay, so which 6'9 forward on a two-way contract has been excellent positionally so far? Do you like Yuta's on-ball or off-ball defense better at this point? He has the best closeout on the team, I think, currently. Yeah, I think his off-ball, I, I guess not off-ball, I'll call it team defense is what stands out the most. He just, he's made some mistakes in transition defense with like, you know, what is your marker and who, when do you, you know, grab the handler and when do you go to the corner and stuff like that. It's stuff you would expect from from anyone um, who's fairly new. But I, once things settle down in the half court, the guy is never in the wrong spot. And I, I think that materializes with, um, you know, closeout and how he measures that closeout range and the speed um, and, and, you know, to your earlier point about the way OG closes out, you know, versus a, a Boucher or someone like that, you know, the kind of controlled closeout when you need it. And then I think, you know, the fact that he kind of has a nose for rebounds suggests to me a level of like spatial awareness and, and understanding of where you are on the court and how a play is unfolding. Uh, he currently has the best defensive rebounding rate on the team. Um, and that won't sustain, but I think, I think he's good, man. He's a, uh, he'll need to show a little bit more offensively at some point, just because the Raptors right now have too many guys in the getting second unit opportunities who, um, don't shoot very much. Um, you know, Watanabe, Flynn, Stanley, um, OG, when he plays in those Lowry bench units, none of those guys get many shots up. So someone's going to have to soak up those possessions. But yeah, Utah's been great um, defensively. I thought he's, you know, he's another guy that like Johnson. I don't know that I'm penciling him in for the next 60 games of rotation time, but uh, he's certainly um, outplayed the fact that he came into camp on basically a tryout deal and wasn't initially expected to make the team. Like Malcolm Miller, Alfonso McKinney, I think he's a, an NBA player. Whether that's with the Raptors, I'm not sure. But he's, he can play NBA basketball. And the spatial awareness that you spoke to as far as helping him get rebounds, that you won't sustain at that rate probably. But I think that will come up a little bit more with heavier minutes as far as being helpful, finding seams on offense. It might not, but if I had to guess, I would say so. Okay, next question from Distorsun1. What are the optimal small ball lineups for wraps? Two, closing with Norm, yes or no? Uh, yeah, I don't like closing with Norm. I know that you know that, that small lineup where Norm comes in for one of the centers with the starters is something I wrote about heading into the season and thought it'd be their most common uh, closing lineup. I just, I'm really at a place where I don't love Powell's decision-making um, and I don't really trust him defensively. Now, if he's your worst defender on the floor and you have the other four starters who are all like borderline all defense at times, maybe you're okay. And Powell's ability to knock down threes or attack a closeout is really important to those groups. Um, but I would like to see a steadier Norman Powell to get those minutes. Um, I, I think 
I think right now Chris Boucher should be the fifth closer. Like I think he's been the guy who's played the best. And I don't think, I just don't think the team is rebounding well enough anyway to be like, well, you can't, can't have Boucher out there because he won't grab rebounds. Well, guess what? No, you're not grabbing rebounds with anyone out there. So um, I think that's, that's where I'd lean is Boucher in that spot. Um, but, you know, we're going to need to see more guys with the, the core four. It's always going to be the core four for me. And then it's, you know, whether it's Boucher or Powell or if Aaron Baines comes back to life or, um, you know, DeAndre Bembry, whoever. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm wishy-washy on this. I, I think a lot of it, you know, when you have four starters locked in, you kind of go game flow and, and see who's playing well for that, that spot. But right now, if I had to pick in a neutral environment, I'd go Boucher. Yeah, and if Powell is giving you, like, 10 or 11 points in a game. If he's giving you 24 and he's launching over a zone, which isn't the easiest thing to do and doing it efficiently, then he'll probably figure into the closing lineup. But or if he he's won't. giving you like, or, or like, like Saturday, <laughs> right? Actually, yes. Okay. But if he's giving you like 10 or 11 points on very middling efficiency, there's basically no reason to have him out there in the closing minutes to just slap somebody's arm for a foul when OG has them blanketed, for example, something like that. It's just, you can avoid those types of things by not having him out there. And if he's going to continue to reward other teams for just his presence, then, then that's not good at all. I don't think. No. And here's where we get back to the issue of uh, only having four guys on the roster that are trusted. So yeah. uh, Boucher nudging his way in there, but I think Nick nurse is going to like, I think the offense defense subs the other night suggest that, you know, Boucher still has a little bit of trust to earn on the defensive end. And it's high risk, high reward to play right now, Siakam and Boucher, who are both very foul prone on a thin team. So that's like another thing too is, you know, Boucher good for him for finishing with five fouls. And as you say, he wasn't, uh, he was in those last two possessions for Stanley, but you had a guy, you know, it does affect how you defend when you have a high number of fouls and, do you want the guy being the linchpin of your defense, a guy who's trying not to foul at certain times? And yeah, there's, there's just a lot that goes into it. Yeah. You want to talk part of why the Raptors defense has struggled. Siakam, Boucher, Len, and Baines are all uh, fouling more than 5.5 times per hundred possessions. Um, you can have one or two guys like that, but basically always having a high foul player on the floor right now uh, is tough. The Raptors, if you go into the number, especially because the Raptors are a team that doesn't draw a ton of free throws, um, you know, you go into it and they're at uh, a free throw disadvantage and they're at a playing in the bonus disadvantage. And that is, that goes into part of their struggle and why maybe they've struggled to close out quarters a little bit too, um, because they're playing with that kind of foul disadvantage a little more often. Um, you know, obviously some of that is the league conspiracy against the Raptors, but some of that is uh, guys having a little too much foul trouble. Uh, have you looked at the numbers on this? Fred, well, especially Kyle, very uh, Kyle, kind of a risky, a risk-taking defender at times. Do you think that the bonus affects how he is at the point of attack when he's there? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I think, you know, Lowry's been a little more trick-or-treat defensively this year anyway. Um, and, you know, the team's defense is better when he's out there. And obviously the plays that he does make happen to, you know, they tend to be momentum swingers and stuff like that. Um you know, Lowry hasn't fouled much himself this year, but he's such a smart, um, like, time and score guy that, yeah, I would, I would imagine he gets a little more conservative once the team's uh, into the penalty. But I just think he's been a little 
uh, a little less steady on the ball in general this year anyway to start. Okay, next question I think is really interesting. Uh, something I've talked about on a different podcast, but Jake Francis at Phaser, quote, did the loss of Nate play a role in the offensive woes, end quote. So this is regarding Nate Bjorkren going to coach the Indiana Pacers, who if anybody follows Caitlin Cooper, she's a fantastic writer. You she's should. Yeah, very, very good at her job. Like, very, very good. And the Indiana Raptors... Uh, trademark that she has going on she has unearthed although it's apparent to quite a few people that there's so much the the pacers are doing that seems taken or has migrated over from the raptors playbook and yeah do you think nate leaving has uh, anything to do with offensive or defensive blows not necessarily. Um, you know, the way things broke down, uh, Nurse liked a collaborative staff that kind of the roles rotated around. So um, even though Adrian Griffin's more of a defensive specialist and Scariel was more of an offensive specialist uh, and Bjorkren is more of kind of the, the player development slash positivity guy, you know, everyone was expected to contribute to all sides of that. And now Chris Finch is kind of in the offensive role and Scariolo moves to the a special teams role, and then um, Jama is in the kind of Nate Bjorkren positivity slash calm Nick down role. Um, so I don't know that, you know, obviously, like we're talking about the Pacers running some of the stuff that the Raptors use. So it's obviously stuff that the Raptors could still be using. Um, you know, I do wonder if uh, that positivity and having his best friend beside him uh, – takes away some level of comfort for, for Nick Nurse, but he's also close with Jamma and Chris Finch. So uh, I don't want to get too much into to that element of it. Um, I will point out the Raptors are uh, scoring more efficiently than the Pacers slightly. Um, even, you know, the Pacers are, are obviously using some Raptors pet plays and it's a lot of fun to see Sabonis run the JV fake handoff and some of the sideline or baseline inbound plays that the Raptors use. It's a lot of fun. Um, defensively is where I think maybe it stands out more and, and where Indiana has been really, really good. They're forcing a lot of turnovers. Um, you know, they're using some of the uh, Raptors principles with the way that they, um, you know, kind of cross close when they help in the paint. And, and I think Caitlin had a breakdown of this uh, pretty recently, actually, uh, about everything that Indiana is doing to not only take away the rim, but also take away the three. And that's something that the Raptors didn't do quite as well last year um, in terms of taking away the three. So uh, I do think Indiana's borrowing from the Raptors on both ends, which makes sense since Nate and Nick have been uh, tied together for a long time. But I don't think, you know, that stuff's not intellectual property, right? Bjorkman doesn't take it and the Raptors can't use it. Um, that's still uh, there and available to them. Having said that, uh, it's really, really fun to see the Pacers starting so well and the Pacers players reacting to Bjorkren as they have and to get to see someone like Caitlin um, get their work out there a little bit more because I think people are finding the Pacers uh, more and more interesting as they get out to this good start. Yeah, color me shocked that Malcolm Brogdon is succeeding in a very intellectual defense. <laughs> That's <laughs> Okay, the, uh, the rest of the questions are, uh, I guess, relating to trades? No, boy. Do we think someone's pretty? The, the answer to the second is we think everybody's pretty. 
And are you ready to dive into some trades, Blake? Yeah. Can we do quick hitters, though? Just because it's too early for this, to be honest. Like, I know why people are thirsty for trades, but like a quarter of the league can't be traded until mid-February because they were signed in the offseason or, or re-signed in the offseason or whatever. Um, and, and like, it's 12 games in. The hardened trade is the hardened trade, but generally you don't see a lot of moves this early. And I would expect this to be more of like a late February conversation. Gonna have to wait to get that maybe second round pick for uh, Kyle. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, well, uh, we got to figure out, you know, the old, uh, the old. This is before your time, but the H BAP, which was Humphreys Brooks and a pick that Nets fans were always trying to send out. Um, you know, I'm sure it's going to be Powell McCaw and a pick this year, or Powell Stanley McCaw and a pick, or something like that. Yeah. Okay. So from Mark Gasol, socialist raptor. Abdul Malik, uh, he's a very good writer and uh, a good Twitter follow for anybody who's concerned, asks Zach Levine to the Raps, yes or no? Blake, thoughts? Uh, first of all, I want Abdul to like co-write a uh, economics of sport and labor, uh, economics of labor of, and of sport book with me. Um, he's a great follower for that kind of stuff in the intersection of um, sports and labor. Uh, so check that out. Check some of the stuff he wrote out, especially- Off-court uh, podcast. Yeah, and which is brand new, and I haven't got a chance to listen yet. Uh, but he also wrote something about, you know, how the the way the NHL handled their labor situation um, during the pandemic is a good reflection for uh, a lot of the labor force. Anyway, check him out, give him a follow. Uh, it's also just a great Twitter name, Mark Gasol. As someone who is was once called Mark Stein, uh, I appreciate it. So uh, <laughs> Zach Levine, I will say uh, no. I will pass on Zach Levine. While I understand that offensively, he uh, certainly fits a need as a guy who can get 20, 25, 30 points, and he's taken a big, big step uh, efficiency-wise the last three years and especially this year. Uh, that's a tough one to see working out. Just, you know, that's – first of all, it's that's all the Raptors cap space for next summer. That's the bulk of it anyway. Um, he does fit the timeline and stuff. I just – I don't see the Raptors making the move like that with the assets that it would cost and the cap space it would use up for a guy who is not really a defender. And I know he's 6'5", and maybe they could get more out of him. But And, and Chicago's starting lineup last year, thanks to Chris Dunn, had a really good defensive rating. Um, but it's just, I don't know. He's a guy where I just don't see the Raptors valuing him as much as a 25-year-old who can get 25 a game will probably be valued on the market. Yeah, when I think about Zach, I, I like what he's doing. It's it's not easy to put up points in the league. It's easier than it used to be, perhaps, but it's certainly not easy. Uh, the Raptors can make basketball really difficult sometimes on the offensive end. Would the Raptors be better with the current roster construction with a wing player who can go and score in volume? I mean, yeah, he would definitely make the Raptors better. Yeah, he's in the 60-30 club right now. 60% true shooting on 30% usage, which is, uh, you know, we're talking early 2019-2020 Pascal Siakam numbers. Yeah, exactly. Hell hell of a comp. And, uh, yeah, I I like Zach Levine a lot. But as you say, a uh, middling return for what might be spent, especially if you're trying to project the Raptors as a, a title team somewhere in the future or built around this type of core. I'm not sure if and, that's and, tenable. And you just have to assume that Chicago is going to want some stuff for him, right? Like the asset cost there will probably be pretty strong 
since he's not an impending free agent or, or anything. The one thing I will say is that the Raptors are really low on cool dunks right now. So Levine would help in that regard. That's true. John Collins as well. Although John see, Collins John, is, I think I've settled on him as like my favorite. This isn't going to happen, but I'm going to try to Harry Giles it into existence uh, yeah. for the trade deadline. I finally got one, by the way. I don't know if you noticed, but the Rashawn Holmes gospel actually picked up a lot of steam after I wrote about it. So Yeah, uh, and then he had that nice, like, that zero rebound, 20-minute performance against the Raptors, the anti-Reggie Evans. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I never know nope. with a guy like Collins how much to look into, like, the rumblings coming out that he doesn't love the fit with Trey Young, and then obviously they have Capella as well, um, and then he's a restricted free agent this summer, so maybe you don't give up assets, you just try to sign him, but uh, he's still only 23, and he does a lot of cool stuff. I think he's so... This is Anna Jane Smith, four. That's her at. Uh, very smart person. I another think great follow. follow. Yeah, another great follow. Uh, a big man whisperer of sorts. When she talks about bigs, I, I tend to listen and sometimes let it inform my view. I'll go watch a big man that she likes and see if I like what I see. But as far as John Collins, she's low on him. But I'm high on a lot of what he can do. So, and I'm also in the same boat as you that, you know, John Collins on the Raptors would be really, really fun. But okay. Yeah, I, I'd imagine, I don't want to speak for Anna, and I haven't talked to her about um, John Collins, but uh, I would imagine there's like the incongruence between what he should be defensively and what the results have been defensively is uh, part of the issue because I know that's been a big part of you know, the way she evaluates big men and the way she contributes so um, importantly to the big man conversation is that a lot of times, uh, you know, the NBA media or NBA Twitter at large, you know, what they think of a, a big doesn't necessarily line up with the what's actually happening on the court. And, you know, the whole, hey, the defense isn't actually that bad with JV and there's rim deterrence there or the, hey, you can win Ennis Cantor minutes or, you know, pick your example. Vooch is obviously the, the biggest one that she's been super, super right on. Uh, so I would imagine that her dislike of Collins is that kind of misalignment of this guy should be really good defensively. Why is he never making an impact defensively? But that's kind of a, an Atlanta Hawks staple right now. Yeah, not a lot going on there. Except Cam and DeAndre Hunter. God, this, do I this love is what that I mean. pairing. Like, like, I know they're middle of the pack uh, defensively, and maybe if, if you're playing Trey Young 33 minutes a game, maybe you should be happy being middle of the pack defensively. Um, I don't know. But it's, uh, I feel like they should be better with Collins, Reddish, and Hunter. But Yes. I, I was really, I've talked about this. This isn't Raptors. Anyway, we'll move it along. Also, uh, can we, the other thing too is like, they got to play on Yekka at some point, right? I love on Yeah, want they him. have Collins and Capella eating those minutes. And Solomon Hill playing 19 minutes a game. Get it, get out of here, Solo. That's, they, it's a very interesting roster construction that they went with. And I was very happy that they're not starting bogey and very happy that Rondo isn't eating uh, stuff, but as far as like front court, I mean Gallo, Collins, Yeka, uh, Capella. That's a lot to sift through. And Solomon mm-hmm. Hill getting a heaps of minutes. Okay, yeah. So get rid of um, John Collins for you know bulk up your order. your wing scoring with like a Norman Powell type, and uh, yeah, there you go. That's right. Win win. It's exactly it. Okay, Scott Bialo, Scott underscore Bialo. Quote, McCaw plus Terrence Davis or Matt Thomas 
for PJ Tucker works in the trade machine and saves Houston a couple million, Raps would have to throw in a second or two. Half of Cleveland's roster are big men. Grabbing one couldn't be too tough. How much longer can the Raps let this Len Baines thing go on? End quote. Okay, so I know you touched on in your gamer from last night somewhat uh, the Raptors playing a guy very low minutes at the center spot. Is that tenable? How much longer can it go on? Do you like the idea of poaching PJ Tucker or, you know, a Cleveland big? Yeah, um, PJ Tucker is one of my all-time favorite players, so uh, I would be more than happy with that. I also think what getting a Tucker type does is like, basically then you're just like, there's no more doubt about it. You're playing, you're leaning into being small. That's your identity. You don't have to worry about trying to fit Baines and Lennon um, to what you're doing or, or changing your scheme based on who's in. You would then have, you know, OG Pascal, PJ, Stanley Johnson, Chris Boucher, all capable of kind of playing that similar uh, style of defense at the five. Um, now, I will say that there was reporting after the Harden trade that the asking price for PJ Tucker is three seconds. Uh, the Raptors back in 2016, 2017 got him for two seconds and Jared Sollinger. Uh, so maybe you let that play out a little more um, and see where the, the price falls. You could also, um, if you wanted a different construction, you know, uh, Baines and Len will be tradable. Uh, in February, so you could that that makes you know trade math work a little easier. Um, I think PJ will command more than one second though, so that's where that's where you know you you're going to have to decide as an individual are you are you cool with giving up multiple seconds um, for that upgrade in a season where even that trade probably doesn't push you you know back to the to the conference finals or the finals. Um, you know, I, look, it's PJ Tucker, man. He's so fun to watch. And at, at a certain point, you have to evaluate trades from how cool they make your team. And PJ Tucker fits that. Uh, Cleveland's a, probably a more one that'll get talked about more. I know people are really thirsty for Drummond. Um, Drummond makes almost $30 million to where you're going to have to send out four pieces to make the trade math work. And then you're already running thin as a team right now. Uh, and then Drummond is also you know, similar to what we talked about with Collins, but with a lot longer of a, a track record, a guy who puts up numbers and hasn't really affected winning. Uh, uh, um, uh. Defensive player of the year vote getter. Under yeah. Lest yeah. You I mean, look, rebounds are important, but, you know, don't get fooled by the 20 and 15 and think that that's, you know, he's not Moses Malone. That's, that's for sure. Uh, and then I think JaVale is just like maybe done at this point. That's the thing is like Which is the Raptors, the Raptors as it currently stands, not a lot of people are helping the bigs. Like the bigs have not been good, but there's not a lot of help baked into the roster for that. And if mm-hmm. Javal, Javal is not markedly better than Baines or anything like that. And he wouldn't just because you see him succeed elsewhere. And a lot of Raptors fans, you know, myself included, I don't watch a ton of Cleveland. I've only seen two games this year if just because he succeeds in spurts there does not mean suddenly those spurts automatically translate to the Raptors and putting Drummond or McGee in a complex Raptors defense, I don't know if it will have the intended effect that fans might expect it to have. No, you'd very much have to change the defensive approach and that might be fine. Like it's not like they were crazy. um, You know, it's not like the defense was, really, really aggressive with Gasol. Like Gasol played some drop coverage to keep him close to the rim and deter there. You could work with that with Drummond and keep him closer to the rim 
for rebounding purposes, but you'd be, you'd certainly be losing the switchability and some of what you like to do in the pick and roll. Um, you know, I know that Cleveland has some other centers. I can't imagine Jared Allen is going anywhere after they, they picked him up there. Uh, Kevin Love still has two years left at 31, like roughly 30 million a year. Um, so I think that that is just too much salary to take on for uh, a guy who's had some trouble staying on the floor and staying impactful the last little bit. Um, you know, maybe Drummond becomes a buyout candidate, although he'd probably go to uh, a good team. Yeah. <laughs> The Raptors don't qualify. Sorry, he probably, probably do uh, <laughs> uh, more of a title. Like, Brooklyn is going to get someone's cast-off center in the bio market, for sure. Yeah, 100%. Okay, uh, we're going to talk Lowry and trade a Jace, Lowry, and then we'll <laughs> do an all-McPoyle team to cheer ourselves up afterwards, okay? <laughs> At Lowry time, quote, <laughs> That's ironic. Jesus. Okay. Anyway, at Lowry time, quote, if the ceiling is around a first round exit, is it worth making the playoffs? Would trading Lowry for assets and retooling through the draft be the way to go? And would not making the playoffs hurt the organization in terms of respect around the league, et cetera, with free agents, quote. Okay. So I'll say something quick. The Raptors don't have much pull at all as far as free agents go for obvious reasons, and that's just, that's kind of tough. That's the way it shakes out as far as being in Canada. That is seen as a complication to many players. Taxes is seen as a complication to many players, and weather is seen as a complication to many players. That makes the free agent stuff more complicated. Would it hurt the organization in terms of respect? I don't think so. It's a crazy year. A lot of stuff is happening, and they're one of the very few teams that has won a championship recently. But is Lowry worth trading for assets? I mean, if the package is correct, then almost anybody is. So that's that's my take on it. Yeah, it's a tough one, right? Because a first-round exit team is kind of like marginally the worst place to be. And there's there's obvious value in the Raptors being able to say, look, we built a winning culture. We've made the playoffs this many years in a row. Um, we're committed to always being good. And then I think there's a value too in if you're trying to attract free agents after the season – being able to say, look at what this core did and they made the playoffs despite, you know, playing in Tampa and whatever, whatever. Um, look at what you can add to that. And I think that that is a tougher sell if that's not a playoff team, um, especially if you deal Lowry and you really bought him out. Now, having said that, there is, you know, in, in to strip some context away from it where, you know, maybe the Raptors aren't pitching a free agent or maybe they haven't made the playoffs X number of years in a row. Uh, you know, there's not a ton of value in a first round exit, especially when you're not getting gate revenue, possibly for that first round of the playoffs. Um, the number 14 team in the lottery gets a one in 20 chance at, or sorry, yeah, a point, 0.5% chance. Um, so one in 100 or one in 200 rather. Jeez, my math is uh, all over the place today. Great. Quick uh, chance at uh, Cade Cunningham or Mobley or whoever else you like in the draft. Alex Suggs. Yeah. Maybe, so, maybe not as one, but I like him. Yeah. And like the lottery odds have flattened to where, look, any chance greater than zero is a chance. And Cade Cunningham is developing like a generational prospect and Mobley might be too. Um, and Suggs is, is very good as well. So this is a, if you were ever going to do that and you were going to be like, hey, we'll take a step back for a year. This is a pretty damn good draft class to do it in, even if you can't get all the way to the bottom which I think we'll see a couple weeks from now. You probably can't because the East is pretty bad. Uh, but this would be the year to do something like that. Now, 
you know, similar to the talk with Drummond, Lowry gets a little complicated to trade because he makes 38, $30.5 million and you have to get salaries close to matching. And then you have to worry about, you know, can you do that without taking back bad long-term money? Um, and then you need the, the draft or prospect equity to make that worthwhile. Now, Philly probably box at Danny Green, Mike Scott, uh, Tybal, and um, Tyrese Maxey for, for Lowry. Like that, that's probably too much for them to give up in terms of depth and, and giving up Tybal and Maxey. But I probably say no to a Tobias Harris package where you're taking on all this salary uh, for a long time and maybe you're only getting uh, Maxey back or one pick or something like that. Uh, I know. Joel Wolfon and I uh, disagree on, on potential Philly frameworks, but I think that's like, this is obviously a, a non-answer, but it comes down to what you get offered. And if it's uh, you know, if you're talking to bias Harris and, and a pick that's not sexy, then no, it's probably not worth it. You just get the playoff experience, continue to build that culture, you know, get that last little bit of Lowry um, and retain his rights. But if you start talking, you know, you're going to dramatically increase your chances of getting Cade Cunningham or, or a prospect like that or you're getting something that is going to, you know, that 2022-ish, 2023 part of the team where Van Vliet, Ananobi, and Siakam are all going to be in their their kind of peak years, uh, then you have to consider it. So, uh, as always with trades, yeah, if you get a really good offer, um, no one is untouchable. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Okay, Blake, here's the thing. There are McPoyles in the NBA, and we got to find five of them to make an all-NBA McPoyle team. Does anybody come to your mind right off the bat? Uh, I need to clarify whether we are doing, uh, is this like appearance-wise? Like, are we just picking the ugliest people? Or are we just picking the weirdest people, the people we like the least? What's our McPoyle criteria here? If any NBA players own a bird, uh, <laughs> that could be <laughs> one. But as far as, <laughs> Pappy McPoyle, as far as... It could be anything. I don't think there has to be a strict criteria. I think okay. it's a, a McPoyle vibes. If the looks are there, I mean, hell yeah. Like Aaron Baines, if he goes bald again, is Doyle McPoyle without a doubt. But I mean, there's, uh, there's plenty of McPoyles. Let's see. Are the Morai, are the Morai McPoyles? See, I was thinking um, the, the lesser of the Antetokounmpo brothers. I like them all too much, but like, one of them is really only written into the show because his brother is, right? right. Um, <laughs> trying to think. I don't want to be too mean about like just ugly people because my mind, my mind gravitates towards uh, the uglies. Like, like Anjish Pazikas uh, with the Wizards is uh, <laughs> probably the closest thing. Like he's a, a Latvian cousin of the, of the Poils. Right. <laughs> he wears Adidas tracksuits as opposed yeah. to their garb. Yeah. It's so... Initially, because of their goonish behavior, I go the Morai. Okay. And I, I, throw, I throw Baines on there. And so this isn't supposed to be mean-spirited, I don't think. So I don't feel too okay. bad about um, Baines on there. And that, so there's three for me. Do you have anybody else in mind? I, I'm going to keep uh, Pesechniks on there because I do think he looks the most like uh, a McPoyle in the NBA. And then... Uh, Jeez, I don't want to do this to him, but the McPoyle family has a well-known mute, and I wonder if we put OG on there to play the, <laughs> oh, the, no. the of someone who doesn't talk. <laughs> I guess you could go Kawhi too, but Kawhi is certainly uh, beyond his lot as a McPoyle. Yeah, 
<laughs> is there someone else who's really quiet that I'm missing? Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Just to save OG a spot. Hmm. Who doesn't talk much? I don't That's know. A, Wiggins, Wiggins doesn't talk much. We Wiggins sure is an awful is an awful interview. Uh, I don't know. I'm just trying to save OG from this, but it needs a the team needs someone who does not talk. Let's go, Wiggs. Andrew okay. Wiggins, much better on defense this year. Uh, yeah. Coast of mine on bouncing around. Evan Gualberto said he has recently liked some of his pick and roll possessions. So outside of being on the or outside of being McPoyle adjacent, uh, reasons for optimism for Wiggins fans. Yeah, um, on top of which, there was a really funny interaction ahead of the Raptors-Warriors game where uh, Steve Kerr got asked about the Maple Jordan nickname and just was not having it at all. Um, it'd be great if Wiggins turns into like a, a good high-end role player because uh, Canada basketball could use him not to fall down that trap again. But He should, right? I mean, he's Rudy Gay, Otto Porter Jr., Harrison Barnes, Andrew Wiggins these guys who had all of this promise receive those big contracts and kind of settle into smaller roles down the line, still at exorbitant paychecks. I think there's value in Wiggins game. Now, I don't know if he's closer to, you know, just kind of a, what the term be a neutral player right now. If he's leaning more negative, I'm not super sure. I haven't looked deep into his numbers, but I know Harrison Barnes brings quite a bit to the floor, still probably overpaid. Rudy Gay, when he was on Sacramento, did, but at a high cost. And Otto Porter Jr. is trying to, you know, make the the right turn on his career now, too. I think there's room for those guys to turn it around. You just have to swallow the contract for the time being. And it depends what they're willing to accept when they move off of that contract. How big a cut do they go? Right. And that's, you know, that was the thing that kind of settled Rudy Gay into reputationally being this elite role player and just like a really productive and useful guy was he started making like $10 million a year. And that's a much more reasonable cost for a guy like that. And it's why, you know, Covington has always been such a valued player in that arch type where, you know, Otto Porter is, you know, at not, I shouldn't say is, but at times has been one of the best kind of three and D low usage guys before the injuries and stuff, but he always had that contract attached to him. So uh, it'll be the same thing with Wiggins where he's not going to shake off the fact that he makes like 93 million over this year and the next two. Um, but there's certainly uh, certainly a path with his skill set, especially if the three-point shot that he's showing this year is, is real. Um, another guy who's interesting like that is uh, DeRozan and what his next contract will look like. Not that he's like, role player in the sense in the same sense as gay and porter and those guys because he's obviously not um that kind of defender but just the will you accept a smaller role and then suddenly everyone realizes that you're really really awesome and it's just been the fact that you had to carry uh entire offenses that is uh why people have been too negative at times yeah spurs are like a top five watch for me this year keldon johnson DeMar, DeJounte, De, uh, Derek White. Yeah. The, Lonnie Walker as well. Jakob, Her, there's Hurdle, a lot going yeah. on. Yeah. yeah um, you know, hopefully hopefully Derek White uh, is back in not too long. Um, but yeah, man, DeMar starting at the four. It's, it's a ton of fun. Yeah. And oh, see, that's the thing is for his legacy, right, or just so. DeMar is my favorite player of all time, just in case anybody needs to know. I, I love DeMar. I love his game. Uh 
I I used to think very uh, positively about how he was the record holder for NBA players scoring overseas because of their two games. <laughs> and he had what, like 58 points or something like that. And it was Travis Outlaw was shredding the Raptors um, when they're in London, I think. And Brooke Lopez, I think JV, absolutely slashed. He still has the scar on his right uh, shoulder from JV's nail, I think. Anyway, I DeMar, just so people say nice things about him, like at mid-level exception, just murdering second units would be insane and would become, you know, any team who signs him for that, probably the favorite player on the team. But, you know, he's worth so much more than that. His playmaking is so fantastic. But, yeah. yeah. Anyway, DeMar. Yeah. So, DeMar's, DeMar's very cool. And I hope, you know, selfishly, I hope that he, like, finds his way to that role because, like, him as, like, a, a more and even more functional like Lou Williams, Jamal Crawford type is a a cool idea, but I think also he'll be able to make more money than that. So, yeah, well, he should be able to anyway, we're looking at a a podcast that's, uh, that's turning down. Do you have any other thoughts on the NBA or the Raptors you want to put out there? I know you're working through some Stanley Johnson takes. Yeah. Well, you know, um, on body mass alone, (laughs) <laughs> no 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 okay we have this conversation like five times a day every day this month dude okay you gotta yeah. cut it out had to work one sunny reference in there outside of the the mick Boyles. yeah um no nah, man i got i got nothing that if people are interested in that fred conversation more i do have a piece up at the athletic on monday morning kind of going into his offensive growth a little bit more and um yeah otherwise i don't know the you can always shoot me these kind of questions because they help me doing mailbags and stuff helps me kind of keep in mind what people are curious about and what I should be writing about. So thank you. Good. Okay. Uh, we'll both retire back to our, our time alone and we'll come up with ideas how to do a Charlie McDennis game virtually. And uh, yeah, Blake, that's the end of the podcast. Do you have a, I know you just did a little mini plug, but do you have anything else you'd like to plug? No, that's it. Um, you know, you guys know where to find me, Blake Murphy, ODC, The Athletic, Columbia House Party, all that good stuff. Um, and please also support uh, Samson's other non-Raptors Republic initiatives because he's got a couple other good projects out there uh, that are really good for the, whether you're a, kind of an X's and O's hardcore with his pod with Evan or the the stuff with Lewis that is just super creative. Uh, it's a lot of fun. You're doing great work, Samson. Thank you. Yeah, so if anybody wants to learn about uh, one of the most notorious assassinations in Mexico in recent history, uh, Minute Basketball. You can just go subscribe and read along. But yeah, that's it for me. That's it for you. That's it for Blake. Blake, thank you very much for coming on, man. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Okay, listener, time to get out of here. But whether you got in here in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye.